Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Several years ago, I was in Hawaii on the island of Oahu. Something that I'd always wanted to try was scuba diving, and what better place to do that than in Hawaii? So I had some class instruction and some training in the water, and finally I got to scuba dive in Hanama Bay. It was a great experience that I thoroughly enjoyed, and several years later, I got the opportunity to scuba dive once again. This time I was in the Red Sea in southern Israel. I do have to say that being several feet underwater while breathing from an oxygen tank is not a natural feeling experience. I had to keep reminding myself to breathe in through the mouthpiece and breathe out through my nostrils. In both places, I was able to swim among some very beautiful coral reefs while enjoying a variety of fish, some of which had amazing colors. I didn't find Nemo or Dory, (laughs) but I did see many beautiful fish. It didn't hurt that they gave us baggies of frozen peas in order to attract the fish. Although in the back of my mind, I couldn't help but wonder if sharks might also be attracted to frozen peas. Anyway, in this podcast message, we've come to the middle section of 1 John chapter 2. The main emphasis in these verses is the exhortation, do not love the world. In some respects, the Christian believer in the world is kind of like a scuba diver in the ocean. When I was down under the water, I was not in my own natural environment where I belonged. Along with that, I needed special equipment to breathe and to survive. That sort of paints a picture of how this world is not our true home or our natural environment as born-again believers. Our citizenship is in heaven And our eternal home is waiting for us there as well as we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. We are in this world temporarily as pilgrims and strangers. And in the meantime, we have spiritual resources by which we live and breathe, primarily the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Let's move ahead then. Let's read a few verses together as we pick up our series in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 2. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. The title of this message is, This World is Not Our Home. We'll focus in on that emphasis much more in a moment, but here in the verses that we just read together, John first addresses the family of God. He begins in verse 12 with the words, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. This word that he uses for little children in verse 12 is a general term. It's addressed to all believers in God's family, and it simply means born ones. 
Every person who has been forgiven of their sins by God through Christ has been born again and has been adopted into God's family. Then in verses 13 to 14, John addresses his words to three different groups of believers in God's family with various levels of spiritual maturity, to fathers, then young men, and finally, little children. His word for fathers is describing mature believers who have a firm grasp on doctrine and Christian living. The second group is called young men, and while they may not possess the same deeper level of spiritual maturity as the fathers, they're well-grounded in the faith. And then there's the third group, little children, and this is now a different word from verse 12, and here it describes newer believers. The first thing that jumps out at us here is how the churches need to be multi-generational, filled with believers of all ages and different levels of spiritual maturity. As a young teenager, my Christian aunt used to take me to her community church in the city where we lived, and I'm really grateful that she did that. And looking back now, there's a couple things I remember about that church. First of all, there was no evangelism, and then all the people that were there attending were 70 years of age and up. But hey, the potlucks were great, and those seniors made a mean casserole. But seriously, there was no influx of newer believers or younger believers. I remember the pastor and the people all being very sweet and friendly, and I'm certainly not questioning their faith, but there just wasn't that spiritual diversity that we see described here in this passage. A healthy church, like a healthy family, has members of all ages and all maturity levels. Here in verse 13, John begins with the fathers or the spiritually mature. This isn't necessarily the believer who is older in age because age is no guarantee of maturity. Everyone grows older, but not everyone grows up. But John is addressing the mature believers, and normally they've been walking with the Lord for many years, as John indicates here. We're very thankful for the more senior saints in our churches. They bring wisdom, experience, and maturity to the family. They may not be as active as some of the younger believers, but we need the passion and zeal of our youth to be guided and even tempered by the wisdom and experience of our more senior saints. Next, John speaks to the younger men, and while their experience isn't that of the more mature saints, their faith is strong, and as John writes here, they have overcome the wicked one. In verse 14, John also says they're strong in their faith because God's word abides in them. This is a good reminder that the Bible is worth every minute you spend in it. Because these were grounded in the word, they were strong against sin and error and the wiles of the devil. Finally, John exhorts the newer believers, the little children. He simply says to them, you have known the Father. In other words, they are newer in their faith, and while they have a lot to learn, they truly know God. And so we thank God for all believers of all different ages and different levels of spiritual maturity. Every healthy evangelical church should be a multi-generational church. Now we come to a very important warning and exhortation from the aged Apostle John written to all the believers in the church, regardless of age or spiritual maturity. In my opinion, this is one of the most important warnings and exhortations to be found anywhere in the New Testament. 
And it was obviously relevant to the believers in the first century, but it is so relevant to us today as believers living in the 21st century. Picking up in verse 15, John writes this, and I quote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. John's warning and exhortation then, do not love the world. What exactly did John mean by that? Do not love the world. The Greek word uh, word there for world is cosmos, from which we get our English words cosmetics and cosmopolitan. It's referring to the world system. John was speaking of the ungodly philosophies and principles which characterize the world, and they are adamantly opposed to God. Later on in 1 John 5.19, he will write that the whole world lies in wickedness. And so to further clarify, there's kind of like three different ways we could look at the world. For one, there's the physical world. You know, there's nature and creation. We're talking about mountains, oceans, forests, deserts, and animals. One of the things that I've really enjoyed in my life and it has been a huge blessing is traveling and seeing God's beautiful handiwork. Just in the United States, I've been grateful to see places like the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and Yellowstone National Park, Niagara Falls, and some of the Hawaiian Islands, to name a few. I've also been fortunate to see many animals along the way. I'm a bit of an animal lover, and so I've been able to see deer and elk and moose and eagles and bears and buffalo. Even with the pollution and the large populations of today, the beauty of God's creation is still there for us to enjoy. You know, in fact, I truly believe that God's creation is better appreciated when it's seen through converted eyes. Well, secondly, there's the world of humanity and of mankind. Once again, that's not what John's referring to here. Why do we say that? Well, in John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world, the world of humanity, that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus died for the sins of humanity. God's heart is that none would perish, but that all might come to repentance. Earlier in this chapter and in our last message, we read how Jesus is not only the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins as believers, but that he died for the sins of the whole world. So thirdly, there's the world system, and that's what John is talking about here, the godless, invisible system of rebellion, which is led by Satan. We are living in a time where Satan doesn't even hide anymore, and the world still doesn't see him. This demonic system opposes God, his word, and his people. It's hostile to everything holy and righteous. Today, we're seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 5 and how darkness will be called light, bitter will be called sweet, and evil will be called good. In other words, everything wrong is now considered right and vice versa. But remember this, right is right even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it. From immorality to homosexuality to abortion to gender rejection, it all stands in opposition to God. It's rebellion against God. Sadly, people are turning their iniquity into their identity. 
John is giving us a warning against the serious danger of worldliness and loving the things of this godless world. In order to follow Jesus, we have to unfollow the world. Now, some people are confused when we talk about Satan ruling this world because they thought that God ruled it. And while God certainly created the world and is certainly sovereign, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they forfeited control of the world over to the devil. When Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for our sins, he bought the world back by his blood, but he has not yet taken possession of it. Remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan? One of the things that Satan offered Jesus was all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would bow down and worship him. And Jesus never disputed Satan's offer because for the time being, the devil is the prince and ruler of this world. But Jesus certainly will take possession of the world with title deed in his hand at his second coming. And we are drawing ever so close to that time. So far in this epistle, John has been sharing with us about loving God and loving others, which, by the way, are the two greatest commandments, right? Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God completely and supremely, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. But here now, John is telling us what not to love, the world. John is reminding us that as believers, we must love what God loves, and we must hate what God hates. Sprinkled throughout the pages of Scripture, we find and read about the things that God hates, like sin, divorce, idolatry, uh, abusing the poor, perverting justice, and so forth. In Proverbs 6, there's that list of seven things that the Lord hates that includes pride, lying, murder, wicked plans, wicked actions, a false witness, and those who cause division. God loves what is right and hates what is wrong, and so must we. Now here in verses 15 to 17, John gives us three reasons why Christians should not love the world. And if you're taking notes, number one, you can't love the world and God. If anyone loves the world, John writes in verse 15, the love of the Father is not in him. They're incompatible. As Jesus said in the Gospels, you can't serve two masters, in this case, God and this world. It is not compatible to love God who is holy and pure while loving the world which is so unholy and impure. Paul wrote for us in Romans 12 2, do not be conformed to this world. The contrast between Abraham and his nephew Lot shows us a godly man who separated himself from the world system, that was Abraham, in contrast to Lot, who was so saturated in the culture of Sodom that when the angels came in that time of judgment, they had to literally drag him away. Number two, the reason why we're not to love this world is because the world is opposed to God. All that is in the world is not of the Father, as we read in verse 16. This fallen world system is headed up by Satan, as we just discussed. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, we read that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who refuse to believe. In Ephesians 2.2, we're also reminded that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. And in John 12.31, Jesus said, the prince of this world will be cast out. So while mankind and creation come from God and are redeemable, 
The godless world system of Satan is unredeemable, just as the devil himself is unredeemable. Third reason, then, why John tells us not to love this world, verse 17, God is going to destroy this world. He writes, the world is passing away and the lust of it. Jesus also said, heaven and earth will pass away. People who love this world and who live for the things of this world are in love with a doomed way of life. This world is passing away and everything in it. In Revelation 18, in the latter part of the tribulation period, the same apostle John describes how the unsaved inhabitants of the earth will be weeping and mourning as they watch the city of Babylon going up in flames. Babylon will be the headquarters of the Antichrist and the headquarters of the demonic world system in the last days. And they'll stand there and watch it go up in flames, but they'll be mourning for it because that's what their hope is in. It was the missionary and martyr Jim Elliott who rightly said, and I quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In verse 16 then, John explains what he means by believers not loving the things of this world. What things? John describes three areas of this fallen world system that opposes God. The lust of the flesh, that would be like the cravings of our fallen and sinful flesh nature. The word flesh is not referring so much to the physical body, but to the fallen nature of mankind. When God created us, he gave us normal desires for things like eating and quenching our thirst, sleeping and sex. But when those things become passions which are ruled by our fallen nature, they are turned into gluttony, drunkenness, laziness, and immorality. Then the lust of the eyes, that describes covetousness and the desire for wrong things. And finally, the pride of life, which describes the arrogant and boastful attitude of people who live for position and power and prestige. In quick summary then, the lust of the flesh is the desire to enjoy, and that speaks of pleasures. The lust of the eyes is the desire to obtain, that speaks of possessions. And the pride of life is the desire to accomplish, and that speaks of pride. And overall, when you think about it, it doesn't sound so bad on the surface, but really what John is saying is that these are all desires that are trying to be fulfilled with a fallen nature. It is sin. This warning by John is pictured for us in two familiar places in the Bible. We see these three things in the Old Testament Garden of Eden, as well as the New Testament wilderness where Jesus was tempted. In the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, we read that the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, which illustrates the flesh, or the, excuse me, the lust of the flesh. When Jesus was in the wilderness and he had fasted for 40 days, Satan tempted him to take stones and turn them into bread so he could satisfy his hunger. Of course, Jesus didn't do that. But several years ago, singer-songwriter Willie Nelson wrote a song that was recorded along with several other singers called We Are the World. Remember that song? And in it, one line of Nelson's lyrics said, just like Jesus turned the stones into bread. Well, that might be the gospel according to Willie Nelson, but it's completely untrue and unbiblical. Also, back to Genesis in the garden, we read that the woman saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes, which illustrates the lust of the eyes. 
And then with Jesus in the wilderness, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and then offered them to him. When I think about the lust of the eyes, I can't help but think of Las Vegas. If you ever drive by there in your travels, especially at night, it is undeniably a dazzling display of colors and lights. It's hard not to be taken back a bit by it all, but underneath the veneer of all those lights is all kinds of opportunities to get yourself into trouble. And then thirdly, going back once again to the book of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, we read that the woman saw that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, which illustrates the pride of life. And when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan tempted him to throw himself off the pinnacle or the top of the temple for the people to see. People like to pride themselves on many things today. People are always boasting and pointing to themselves, and they are prideful about so many things, including their ethnic background. But we need to be careful, and let's not forget that in the 1930s, Adolf Hitler convinced Nazi Germany of two things— that they were the superior race, and that the Jews were responsible for all the world's problems. Millions of people lost their lives as a result. The Bible reminds us that we're all created equal, and we all trace our lineage back to the same starting point. In the words of William Jenkins, and I quote, my grandfather was Adam, and my great-grandfather was dust. That's so true. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And let's not kid ourselves. Listen carefully, please. If Satan used those tactics to bring down mankind in the garden, and he used those same tactics to try and disqualify the Son of God in the wilderness, then what makes any of us think that he won't use those same tactics against us today? You better believe that he will. Every believer needs to guard themselves against the danger of worldliness. Remember that man in Scripture and the New Testament? His name was Demas. At one point, he's referred to and described as a fellow laborer with Paul. At one time then, Demas was following the Lord and serving alongside of Paul, but then came the day when he had deserted Christ. What happened? Well, Paul records these words in 2 Timothy Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas fell in love with the world, and as a result, he deserted Christ. Bible students wonder if Demas was backslidden and might eventually come back, or if, like Judas Iscariot, he was never genuinely saved in the first place. No one can say for certain, but the last time we see Demas in the Bible He's walking off the pages of Scripture and headed in the wrong direction. Let's return to verse 17 once again, please. John concludes this section with a one-two punch that has eternal consequences. First off, this world and everything in it is passing away. It's just a matter of time. And then as Peter describes in his second epistle, this world will dissolve with a fervent heat a fervent fire. Those who live for this world are living for something that will soon disintegrate. The world was judged once before with water, and the next time it will be with fire. This will happen when Jesus Christ at the appointed time will literally let go and remove his sustaining power from the universe. 
We read in Colossians that everything in the universe is being held together by Jesus. And when he lets go, there's going to be a fiery explosion such as people have never, ever imagined. The Big Bang theory or idea is correct, not for how the world was created, but for how the world will end. Afterwards, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and we will live with him forever. Secondly, John tells us that those who do the will of God will abide forever. He's describing genuine believers. In contrast to the temporary nature of this world, those who belong to Christ will abide with him in heaven forever. Have you noticed that everyone is out of place today and belongs somewhere else? The saved belong in heaven with Jesus. We're not there yet. The unsaved, they belong in hell apart from God. And the devil and his fallen angels belong in the lake of fire. The day is coming when everyone will be right where they belong. In the meantime, while we live in this world, we do so by remembering that this world is not our home, as our message title reminds us. The church is like a ship in the ocean. The ship is in the water, just like the church is in the world. But that ship is not of the water any more than the church is of the world. When that ship starts to take on water, that's like worldliness entering into the church. As one pastor put it, and I quote, the problem of sin is not primarily the world around us, but the worldliness within us. As believers, we've all chosen heaven over hell, but not all believers have chosen heaven over this world. Be careful. As I stated at the top of the study, we are in the world temporarily. We're pilgrims and strangers. Uh, I heard a story, and I want to close with it. It's the story of a rabbi who lives in an old section of Jerusalem in a tiny apartment with just a desk, a chair, and a bed. Someone visiting him from New York asked him, where's your furniture? The rabbi responded, where's your furniture? That person replied, I didn't bring my furniture, I'm traveling to which the rabbi responded, so am I. Well, thanks again for tuning in and until our next podcast Bible study message, may the Lord bless you. 